If you're new here, uh, it's a good time because we're taking the first couple of weeks in September just to explore who are we as a church uh, and to remind ourselves for those of us who are members of Knox and, and to sort of tell those who might be new, this is who we are as a church. We want to explore the, the, the vision, the mission of our church and some of the biblical underpinnings of what makes us Knox. And our vision as a church is simple. It's three phrases. It goes like this. We are a church that is following Jesus, loving the city, serving the world. Say that with me, would you? Following Jesus, loving the city, serving the world. These three phrases capture the heartbeat of who we are. And there's a priority to them too. First one, following Jesus. This is the engine. This is, this is what fuels all that we do. And flowing out of our following of Jesus is loving the city. God has placed us in this city, Toronto. And uh, we are called to love this city. That word was intentionally chosen, love. It's both an affection word and an action word. It is, we're, we're trying to say, you know what? We are called to truly appreciate the city. All the common grace goodness that this city offers us, we want to love how God is in the midst of all of that cultural beauty and wonder. But it's more than that, too. It's an action word, too. So we develop, intentionally develop an attachment to this city. Our hearts, but our lives get invested in the life of this city. And so we voluntarily give ourselves our time, our energy for the sake of the city so that it might flourish. There's a passage in, in Jeremiah where the people of God are called to seek the prosperity of the city because if it flourishes, this is the promise, if it flourishes, so you too will. And we're convinced of that. So as we seek the flourishing of Toronto, we're convinced that our flourishing somehow is bound up in that. And so we attach ourselves to the city. We tie up our well-being, our happiness with the well-being and happiness of the city. And we get affected by this city. We rejoice in all that's good of the city. And we weep over all that's broken in this city. And we do this because we are convinced that God loves the city. We are convinced that God's heart is for this place. Tonight we're going to look at a beautiful parable, a story that Jesus told that helps us get to that place. Um, and it's really a, a story, that uh, a parable that I, I think is almost autobiographical of Jesus, of God. It's a, it's a window into the heart of God, and it comes from Luke chapter 14. And um, if you have a Bible, read along. It may be, is it going to be up there? It is. There you go. I save you walking back there to pick up the hard copy. Luke chapter 14. <clears throat> Now, a little context, Jesus, uh, it says at the very beginning of Luke, has been invited to a dinner, and it is a dinner from a very prominent religious leader. So a, a pretty hoity-toity, high-up religious leader has invited, and all the guests, you can, you know, it's the A-list of uh, the leadership that are there, and they're all sort of scouting Jesus out, wondering, what is this dude? Who is he? What is he about? And then in the midst of uh, the dinner, we pick it up here. When one of those sitting at the table with Jesus heard this, he said to him, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. 
At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought a five yoke of oxen. Yoke of oxen are two, so it's a pair, so you got 10 animals. And I'm on my way to try them out. Please, excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. He doesn't even ask to be excused. He's like, I got some urgent business with my wife to handle here. The servant came back and reported to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out into the roads and country lanes and make them come in. Compel them to come in, is another translation, so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of these men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is God's word. Last Sunday, we uh, enjoyed a really great uh, barbecue after our morning service. I don't know if some of you were there. A lot of people got connected. It was good to enjoy some food together. I met someone who had, this was their third time they had come to our church to Knox. And uh, so we talked a bit about Knox and she says, you know, I've been here three times. Every time there's been food. (laughs) And I said, that's how we roll here. Yes, indeed. At Knox, we like a good party. Because there is something emblematic. It's it's a picture of what life with God is all about. It's a window into God's heart. The call to follow Jesus is the call to participate in a party, in a banquet. It is the call also then to invite others to enjoy all that goodness that God has spread out for us. I am absolutely convinced that we as a church... Our biggest problem isn't the fact that we aren't, we aren't broken up enough, that we don't feel bad enough about all that is wrong with us. I'm convinced that our biggest problem is that we don't know enough joy about what is right and good about God and the life he offers to us. Our gravest sin, I think, is that we under-celebrate the goodness and the grace and the lavishness of God. We don't celebrate half as much as we should have, half as often, half as well as we should. We need to throw better parties, I think. Hey? There's some people who say there is a spiritual discipline called celebration. I'm signing up for that one. Who's with me? Because it's a discipline, it's a discipline of joy because we are half-hearted creatures. We don't know the joyous heart of the Father. We really don't. Now, you might be skeptical. Some of you looking a little doubtful about all this. So, let's think of this for a moment. Does anyone know what was the first miracle Jesus ever did? The wedding banquet, thank you. Yes, first miracle of Jesus. He, the first miracle of Jesus is not to raise the dead. It's not walking on water. It's not feeding thousands of people. It is extending, taking a party that was on its last legs and making it run longer. That is 
who Jesus is. That is his first miracle. And the Gospel of John, John 2, where it says, where it tells us that story, it says at the very end, Jesus did this to reveal his glory. Now, how crazily wonderful is that? That a party that gets extended somehow is a revelation of the glory of who God is. This is who God is. He turns beautiful water into even better wine. And this is a sign that tells us something of the goodness of who God is. Jesus shows he's Lord of the feast, Lord of the party. He's saying, yes, if you follow me, you're going to face some difficult things. No doubt about it. Um, And Jesus is pretty upfront about that, right? He says, I'm going to call you to deny yourself. You will suffer. You will be persecuted. I'm going to call you to humble yourself. But all those things, they are a means to a greater end. And that greater end is a feast. It's a celebration. It is filled with wine and dancing and joy and great laughter. This is the life of God. And over and over again, the Bible puts forward that picture of life with God. It's as if we don't get it. It's as if something in our heart is very resistant, that we just cannot believe that. And so over and over again, the picture portrayed to all of us is life with God in God's kingdom is a feast. Isaiah 25 verse 6 says, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. Rich foods, okay? Not your low-fat, you know, no fun twigs and grains diet. No, 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 not a bit of it. Rich foods, a banquet of aged wines, the best of meats. Sorry, vegans, you're going to have to learn. The best of meats and the finest of wines. And here in this parable, Jesus reissues that beautiful image, that picture, and he likens the kingdom of God to a party where he says, he opens it up, a man prepared a great feast, not not just a, a little feast, a great feast, and sent out many invitations. And again, of all the things Jesus can tell us of who he is and what life with him is like, it's a banquet. It's a feast. God invites you and I to nothing less than that. Which makes me wonder sometimes, um, here in the city of Toronto, why today is it that a whole lot of people did not show up at a church, did not worship in a church setting? How come? Here's what I often hear from people. Some variation on this. You know, Religion seems like a real drag. I want to have some fun. I want to enjoy my life. Christianity, you know what? It looks like a whole lot of other religion, which is a lot of drudgery and work and no fun at all. I want to enjoy my life. Now, can I ask you, is that your view of Christianity at all? Now, come on, look a little deeper, okay? Is there a hint of that, okay? Is there even a part of you that understands Christianity that way, that understands Christianity this way, that, you know, Jesus is inviting us to follow him, and he says basically, look, suck it up, okay? You know, just say no, stay out of trouble. I know it's tough, but if you want to be safe from hell, this is the deal. This is how it goes, okay? Is that your view at all? 
Okay, Steve is clear. <laughs> because if there's even a hint of it, I think in this parable, Jesus is throwing down a challenge and saying, you, you have no idea of who I am. You have no idea of what this life is about. If you're going to reject me, Jesus is saying, at least do it intelligently, okay? Because you don't even know what you're rejecting if that's your reason for it. If, you, if, you, if you're rejecting me because you think you want to have fun and enjoy life, you, you don't even know who I am. You don't even know what I offer to you. I, I have come so that the world will run free with joy and gladness. Wherever I pass, joy erupts. This is my life. I am the Lord of feasts, and I have come to bring this festival joy. There may be reasons for us to reject Jesus. People struggle and ask a lot of important questions, but this, this isn't even one of them. And the heartbreaking reality is that so many people don't know this truth of God and his kingdom. The sad reality is that so many people do miss out and reject the invitation to join in the party. We read in the parable, not everyone, everyone gets invited, not everyone takes Jesus up on the invitation. The invitation is offered to all, but it's only a few who enjoy the feast, which is really important for us to name as we enter into our city, as we take up this mission and, and seek to love the city. As we seek to do that, we got to be sure, we got to understand, as we invite people to God's beautiful festival, you know what, some people are going to reject that invitation. As we seek to love and serve and care and reach out to the city, at times it is going to be spurned. In this parable, we read about people who did that, who miss out on the celebration, but it is a self-imposed exclusion. One scholar, biblical, uh, biblical scholar, Kenneth Bailey, um, is, he, he's a guy who has lived in the Middle East all his life, so he knows the culture, and he's, he's done a lot of research to try to figure out how, to, how we can best understand these parables culturally. And he says the excuses that the people in this parable give are not just really lame, because they are lame, right? Like, you know, I, I've just bought a piece of property, and I need to go check it out. Who does that, right? Who buys a piece of property and only then, after they purchase it, will then go and, okay, let's check it out. Who, after they buy animals or update it after you buy a car, is then, okay, now let me get my mechanic to check it out. No one does that, right? Come on, that's just lame. So this scholar says they're not just lame, they're actually insults. They're slaps in the face of the owner. These people offering these excuses are insulting. Imagine this. So the invitation is given. All these people accept the invitation to the party. And then when the master says, hey, dinner's on, they say, mm, got to go. It's sort of like you inviting people over to dinner. Everyone's sort of, you know, in the living area, maybe having a little wine and cheese, a little aperitif before dinner. And you say, dinner's ready. You know, cooking's already. Table's set. Here we go. And someone says, you know what? I actually got to go. Sorry. And a whole bunch of people leave. You'd be furious. So why did they accept the invitation but then not come in? What do we draw from this? I don't know all the turns of heart of these people. 
But I think it tells us something of what history has shown us again and again. Remember, Jesus is at a dinner of some high-powered people. And he's telling this parable. And you got to know that these first invitees who rejected Jesus, is, it's a, it's a, he's, he's unsettling some of those people there. It's interesting what history has shown us that the closer we are to places of power, whether by virtue of our education or our vocation or our economics or by class, the closer we are to the center of social power, the more tendency we have to have a prejudice against the gospel. History just shows that again and again. You see that in the Bible too. How many times do we see... Um, Jesus saying to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, to people of influence, to the educated, to the top of the social class, the prostitutes, the sinners, the marginalized, they are entering the kingdom of heaven before you because they've accepted this message. How many times do we hear throughout scripture, it is the weak and the poor and the oppressed who gladly receive the news of Jesus while it's all the rich, the powerful, those in who are standoffish. The educated, the influential, the powerful people in every society have always had this prejudice against the Christian faith, which should say something to us because here we are against one of the most influential schools. We're in places of privilege, uh, in the city, economically, and I wonder how that affects us. People in those positions have found almost every other religion except Christianity more palatable because Christianity is, is one of the religions that says a very humbling thing. It says you're a sinner. You're broken. You can do nothing to save yourself. Jesus Christ died a horrific death to pay the penalty for your sins so you might become part of God's family. It, it, Christianity says underneath all our respectability, underneath all our morality, underneath all our education and our privilege and power, you are as needy a sinner as anyone else. And that's a humbling thing. Many people turn away from the gospel because of that. Don't accept the good invitation. And so loving our city means helping people Truly hear the gospel, proclaiming the gospel in a way that people of our city can hear and understand it. This is what one thing we want to do as a church. We seek to help secular, urban people, people who are some of the most prejudiced against the gospel. We want to communicate, communicate the gospel in ways that they can know and understand and appreciate. I don't know if they'll accept it. That, that is a Holy Spirit deal. But I don't want it to be a failure of communication. How do we learn to speak the postmodern language and ethos of our culture? How do we communicate the gospel in ways that people know it? And so we want to engage, we want to patiently listen to the questions and doubts and struggles people have with the Christian faith. We seek to understand those questions so that they might have the hope of knowing the joy of God's life. And as you've been hearing, one of the practical ways you can do that is invite someone to Alpha. Alpha actually is a feast. Um, it starts with a meal. It's a beautiful meal. We really do, based on how Jesus you know, has portrayed the kingdom, we want to pull out all the stops and provide just a fabulous meal. Um, but then, provide people with an encounter with the gospel. So, 
invite someone to that good, um, good feast of Alpha that's going on. But know that your invitation might get rejected. And that'll hurt. But know this, God knows that. God knows what, it's look, what that feels like. Look at the parable again. The man hosting the banquet is rejected, and he's hurt by the rejection. He gets angry, right? You know what that feels like when you offer something really good and precious, something that you've invested yourself in, you offer, and it gets spurned or rejected. Ow! So the, 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 the master here gets angry, but notice how quickly his anger turns to grace. So he says, go into all the streets, all the alleys of the city, and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. And I love how, how Jesus is showing how the, the power of God's kingdom just flows so naturally to the weak and to the oppressed and to the poor. The kingdom power of God just goes out to people on the margins, people in the alleys, the have-nots of this world. The servant is charged by the master, go out. Now, what does that mean for us as a church to go out? It means that we as a church understand that uh, the kingdom of God is meant to propel us into the lives of the needy of our world, of the marginalized. And we will go out with creativity and with endurance and with, with a relentlessness so that we can engage and and. and plow our lives into the needs of others for the sake of others, that we will involve our lives in the needs of others around us, and that we will take all the resources we have and use them for the sake of others and for the flourishing of others. This is what it means for us to live, love this city as well, not only to proclaim the good news, but to live it out with acts of justice and compassion and mercy. This is a critical part of living out the gospel and loving the city here. And as you've heard, in a few weeks, we're going to have this thing called hands and feet. And I can't urge you enough to come there. It is going to be an opportunity for us just to think through how, what, what has God placed on our hearts? How might we practically love and serve the city? We're going to do some dreaming and brainstorming and discerning as a church. And we trust that God is going to lead us into very practical ways that we can do that with our hands, with our feet. Allow the gospel to take us out into the city and serve it well. Because God's feast is for the marginalized. It's for the poor so that they might know the joy of God's kingdom. Because the life of God, his joy, is meant for all to know and enjoy. And I think maybe that is probably the core of the parable that Jesus is trying to communicate. That this joyful, gracious feast is for all people. There is no hedging the boundaries here. What we sense here is the large-hearted love of God. How, how lavish he is with his grace. The wideness of God's mercy. And I think this parable poses a really important question that will challenge our view of how we understand God. It's a vital question, and our answer is probably going to direct us in one way or another in terms of how we love the city. And the question is this. Do you believe in a stingy God or a generous God? In your heart of hearts, how do you conceive of God? Is God pretty tight-fisted, miserly with his saving mercy? You know, just doling it out to a select few? 
Or is God lavishly generous in his invitation to come and enjoy the feast? I am not a universalist at all. Universalism, I don't know if you know, is this, this conviction that in the end, everyone's going to be saved. doesn't matter what you do, how you live, who you believe, everyone's going to be saved. I, I, I can't buy that in the name of love and in the name of freedom. Because of course, God, we, we can resist God's invitation. We can. The very nature of love is freedom. And freedom says you have the right to choose and that choice will be respected. And some people, you got to know, some people choose a life without God. The Bible calls that hell. But you got to know, it is always self-imposed, as we see in this parable. Someone said, the door to hell is locked from the inside. It is not something God does to you. It is something that people do to themselves. And as for any idea who's in, who's out, you know what, that is not for me, for you to decide or judge, but what I do know and what we can stand just with great conviction is that the Bible consistently portrays God as so generous, so lavish with his love. God is so big-hearted with his grace. Peter says the Lord is not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The invitation of God is for all people. I, it's for you, all of you here. I don't know what backstory you come today with, but if I know some of those backstories, it's enough for you to say, I don't know if there's a place for me at this table, at this feast. I don't know if I could possibly fit, because you don't know the stuff, the junk that I carry around. And the God of the Bible says, there is a place for you. This is a place of grace for you. The invitation is for all of you. It's amazing how that word invitation is repeated throughout the word call or invitation 11 different times in, in this passage of Luke 14. We are invited to participate, no matter who we are, no matter what we come with. The church, we are in the invitation business. But do we take that commission seriously? Luke 14, 21, the servant is said, told, go quickly. Do we have a sense of urgency for this? To invite our city to this grand feast. Verse 23, that servant has said, you know, go look in the back streets along the hedges. In other words, leave no stone unturned. And then we're called, the servant is called, compel them to come in. Now that is not coercion. We're not twisting arms or anything like that. But it's more so helping people get over the obstacles, doing all you can to help people get over the obstacles they have, the barriers to to knowing the grace of God. Because here's the deal. So many people have distorted views of who God is, misinformation of what the Christian faith is about. And so they need people to patiently explain it and, and demonstrate what that good news is about. So many people can hardly believe how good grace is and that it is available for them. So many people have this distorted picture of God that he is this angry, judgmental, finger-wagging God just waiting to, boom, nail you as soon as you get out of line. So many people think of God as this stingy, miserly God who's saying, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, prove yourself, and then I'll let you in. So many don't know 
that God is throwing this grand, beautiful feast. And the only entrance fee has been paid by Jesus Christ. And so we need to compel people. We need to help people overcome all the distortions, all the obstacles to see the stunning beauty and grace of God. And the goal, the goal we're told, so that my house may be full. You hear God's heart in that? God wants all to come inside and enjoy this party. We have a city, about three million people. We have three million invitations to extend, friends. Some of those three million people only understand Christianity as sort of this duty-bound moralism. No good news there. They need the church. They need you to help understand it as good news, as grace-filled. They need you to live it out so that they get a taste of the joy and the wonder of God's kingdom. We are called to invite as many people and as quickly as we can, and we're called to do it in the most compelling way we can. This is loving the city, demonstrating the extravagant grace and love of our God through our words, through acts of service and love. And we do this. We do this only because of who God is because of the wideness of his mercy. There's a hymn that goes like this, and we'll just close with that. There is a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice, which is more than liberty. There is welcome for the sinner and more graces for the good. There is mercy with the Savior. There is healing in his blood. Let's pray. God, I guess maybe the first thing we need to do is to confess uh, and maybe to offer up all the distorted views we might have of you. All those pictures that we maybe inherited from distorted versions of Christianity that others offer to us, or pictures that emerge from hurt, from pain, from brokenness, but they're not true of who you are, God. They're just not true. And so we pray that you would do a healing work in our minds and that you would provide accurate, truthful understandings of who you are. Help us to see the beauty, the wonder, the grace of this feast. This is, this is who you are, Jesus, the Lord of the feast. You have come to bring joy, unspeakable, inescapable joy. May we know that profoundly, deeply today. May that move us to love the city, to invite people, because we're not inviting them to something hard, I mean harsh. We're inviting them to life to abounding joy. Thank you for that picture of the feast, God. May every time we enjoy a meal with someone, may it be a reminder of all the goodness you lay out for us. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen.